Okay. We're going to get started with class number three. And as usual, we start with a question <clears throat> to get our to get the class started and get everybody awake. So today's question is what what is it that makes us human? We're starting today on page 74. What is it that makes us human? Anybody? A soul. A soul. Anybody else? A body. A body. Okay. <laughs> Animals have bodies too. A mind, a brain, okay, very good. Conscience. Conscience. Stand upright, as opposed to animals walking all four, okay. Two That's what she said, yes, standing upright, yeah. Large chimps stand upright. But it's not the norm. Stand upright. The ability to reason. Bit of reason, okay, so, mind. I guess it's all part of it. Speech. Speech. Articulation. Anything else? Okay. So, well, in the previous lessons, we studied parts of the Torah's creation account. And last week, we spoke about that we learned from how, when God created the world, the fundamental principles of nobility, of God's benevolence, And we read those verses last week and we learned about God's benevolence in creating the human being, how he's bestowed dignity on humanity. However, today we're going to take a new perspective and probably a deeper dive into those verses. And to be able to see what the Torah is telling us when it introduces us with these final verses concerning the creation of man. So let's take a look at these verses and we'll start to extrapolate from there. We're going to look at text number one on page 75. The Torah says as follows. This is from the book of Genesis, which is telling us about making the human being, making man. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. They shall rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the animals and over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over all of the beasts that tread upon the earth. So you know the story about the scientist who one day got together with another bunch of scientists and said, you know what, things have advanced so well in science, we can now clone human beings, we don't need God anymore, we're done with him. So the scientist walked up to God and said, God, you did your job, we figured everything out, you can do yours, and we will already take over, we don't need you anymore. So God listened very politely and patiently and said, listen here, why don't we make a little competition? If you think that I'm done with, let's see if I'm obsolete. Let's see if I'm still uh, no need. So let's make a contest here. You say you can create man, you can create human beings, clone them. Go ahead. I'll make a human being. You'll make a human being. We'll see who works out better. And God tells the scientist, I made man already. 
Now it's your turn. Let me see you go make a man. So the scientist bends down, starts, but the trick is you've got to make it the way I made it. So the scientist bends down, starts taking some earth and wants to start making the man. God says, no, 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 go get your own earth. So when we look at these two texts, there's two very important elements, primary elements that this text is telling us about the creation of man. If you look at the words that the Torah tells us over here is, the first thing that God says when he makes the human being is, is let us make man in our image. The first concept that we find in the primary element of the human being is that it is created in the divine image. But then there's a second part of the objective and the point of why the human being was created. If you look in the last verse, it says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The second job and the second most important thing of what the purpose of the human being is, to subdue the earth. So we have over here two qualities or two purposes or two factions that are the primary focus of the human being. Number one, that God created the human being in the divine image. And number two, that its purpose is to subdue the earth. So we're going today, going to analyze these two concepts. Number one, the divine image that the human being was created in. And number two, our purpose of subduing the earth. So let's delve into it and analyze it one at a time. Let's start off with the concept of the divine image. What does it mean, the divine image? God says that he created the human being and endowed us with a divine image at creation. That means the human being contains something godly. And if we want to look, the Sephora, which is a commentator on the book of Genesis, explains the following text, what it means, divine image, as follows. It says, text number two, page 76. In our image... This refers to humanity's abstract intelligence. In our likeness, this refers to the realm of action. It is saying that the human being acting with self-awareness and consciousness somewhat resembles the behavior of the angels. However, he continues, the angels' actions are not voluntarily And in this respect, a human being does not resemble them. Rather, in this respect, a human being somewhat resembles God who acts with free choice. So let's understand what the Sephardim is saying here. He takes apart the verses step by step, and he explains the verse where it says first, let us make man in our image. Over here, when he's telling us about our image, it's an expression of godliness which is within individual. And therefore, he says that the first thing when we talk about image is God's superior intelligence, that he has given the human being a concept of human intelligence, superior intelligence. The human being has the ability to adapt to new situations, to use its knowledge to manipulate the environment, and most importantly, what do we have human intelligence for? To understand abstract concepts. We can understand things which are beyond ourselves, things that we never experienced, things that we never understood. We can learn new ideas, we can manipulate ideas, look at ideas from all different angles. But then he continues, there's another great thing about about this divine image. 
So number one, it's superior intelligence. Number two, it continues to highlight the human being's concept that some of you may have mentioned here, the concept of self-consciousness. What does it mean, self-consciousness? Only the human being are conscious not only of what's around them, but also of their activities, their bodies, their mental lives. Any other creature or species just has one direction, just does something in one way. Put it in the sink. Put it in the sink and get another one. Any other thing, any other creature, just is a, a one way, one track, not one line, doesn't think about its entire environment. The human being, because it was created in the divine image, has a level of self-consciousness. Now, both of these are not only unique to the human being. Both of these are also, as we know in Judaism, there exists something called extraterrestrial beings, angels. Now, what are angels and the details of how angels manifest itself deserves an entire class for itself. But let us suffice to say that there are the concept of angels in Judaism. We say it in the services, we talk about it in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but there is the concept of angels. These angels also have A, a superior intelligence, and B, they have a self-conscious. And in respect to humans, they are probably of a higher level of self-consciousness and a higher level of intellect than the human being. But the Sephora continues. And if you recall the last paragraph you just read, he says there's something here that we as human beings have something even greater than the angels. While angels conscious, super, super conscious, if you want to call it, self-consciousness, and superior intelligence may be more than the human being, but at the end of the day, the angels are robotic. The angels are programmed. Every angel has a specific challenge or specific task that was given. In fact, it doesn't have any challenges. It's a specific task they're given. And it can only do that task. We find it in the story of the Abraham and the angels, Jacob and the angel. Every single angel was given a specific task and cannot deviate from the task, cannot manipulate the task, has to do the task as prescribed by God. There's no free choice. And in a sense, as we can call it, robotic. However, human beings can have conflicting desires, conflicting inclinations, can have different decisions, and can make their own decision. Not only can they make their own decision, they can in essence make a decision which may be even contrary to what God wants them to do. Negative decisions. Things that may negatively impact them. That means the human being has a level of free choice and the only reason why we have free choice is because we are like God. God has the ultimate free choice that he even can change nature. Our free choice is within the realms of nature. But we still have free choice. That's why it's only called like God. Let us make man like his image in our likeliness because we are not exactly like God because God has the ability and the free choice to change nature. We within nature have free choice. We are not programmed. So to summarize what we have over here is, the bottom line what we see over here is that the human being over here, what we call the divine image, the gift that God has given the human being that they are created in the divine image, will split itself up into three things. Number one, that we were given superior intelligence. Number two, we were given a self-conscience. 
And number two, three, more importantly, we were given free choice that angels even don't have. So if you want to call the souls of people, human beings have a greater level than an angel because an angel is programmed and robotic while the human being makes the choice. And therefore, for that reason, which is a separate discussion on its own, human beings are then punished or rewarded based on their choices, while angels don't have any punishment or reward because it wasn't a choice of theirs, it was a pre-programmed robotic move which was prescribed for them to do, whether it's a bad thing or a good thing. So that's why they don't have any um, uh, reward or punishment for that matter. So what we see over here is the human being's unique qualities, intelligent, self-consciousness, and free choice, as you can see in figure 3.1. Now let's go to the second thing that we mentioned. The second unique thing that was given to the human being when God created the human being, which is subduing the earth. After God tells us that he created us in the divine image, the Torah relates to us of what the job of the human being is. And the biblical Nachmanides explains as follows. Text number three. God gave humans power and dominion over the earth. Page 78. They can do as they wish with the animals and the creatures that move along the ground. They can build, uproot, mine copper from hills. This is all included in the words in the verse over all of the earth. What does it mean subduing the earth? The only, the only creature, the only creation that beyond the quality of intellect, self-consciousness, self -consciousness, Free choice. What did that do to us? It gave us now the ability to rule every other creation. Everything. Everything that's in this world, human beings are superior to. The human being decides today that he wants to take the dog for a walk. The dog has to go for a walk. If he wants to break this mountain, chop this wood, cut this flower, whatever it may be. We aren't limited to the natural world. Vegetation is limited to the soil that it has to be planted in. We then can come along and cut that vegetation. That means God gave the human being the ability, unlike other creations, to fashion tools, to work the earth, extract nat natural properties from it, plant, cultivate, build, destroy. And God commanded us to do so. Because what was the commandment? If you look back in the first text, Fill the earth and subdue it. It is the human being's job to cultivate the world for human settlement and civilization. That's the human being's job. In fact, we find in many different places, in fact, it's even brought down in Isaiah, did he not, in the words of Isaiah, he says, did he not create the world not to be desolate, but to be settled? The world is created, as you even find that he talks about Adam and Eve, that he put them in the Garden of Eden, the words in Hebrew are, law of the Ulashamra, to work it and to take care of it. Our job, we are the caretakers of the world. We're the caretakers of the universe. So over here, there must be, when we're told by God that we need to settle the world and we need to cultivate and improve it for civilization, but for what purpose? Why are we cultivating the earth? Why are we mining, digging, chopping, planting? For what reason? For survival? There must be a deeper purpose. And over here, the Rebbe tells us as follows, what is our ultimate mission? The blessing and the divine command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that God gave after the creation of humanity, 
is a general command that expresses the role and purpose of the creation of humankind. Humans were created to multiply, fill and settle and subdue it, making it into a dwelling place for God. If you look at the words in the verse, going back to text number one, in the last paragraph, God says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Over here, the Torah is telling us subduing the earth. What does it mean to subdue the earth? Is to make this world a place for God. To sanctify the most smallest and detailed physical thing that exists in the world. God wanted that this physical world should be a a dwelling place for God. God wanted that he should feel at home here on this mundane physical world. And the ultimate reason of why he created the entire world is that we as human beings should fill the world and ultimately subdue it. And that's why, what does the word say? Be fruitful and multiply because every single human being reflects godliness. Every single human being personifies godliness. And this is why the Torah emphasizes be fruitful and multiply because every time there's another person in this world, they are continuing to bring the divine image of subduing the world and bring it to its true reality of godliness in the world. Because every single human being in this world is created within the divine image. So every single human being in this world is another part of God in this world and bringing its world to its ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of which it was created for, to be in the divine image with the abilities that God gave us, with the beautiful cultivation that God gave us the ability to do. So when every single person, the more people are in this world acting in the divine image of God, the more we cultivate the world and making this world more godly. So the human being, just by living, the little child who is born, who is brought into this world and born in with the divine image of God, has now again brought another level of godliness into this world and subduing the world and in bringing this world to its ultimate and divine purpose. So when we look back at these two things that God gave us here to do, is number one, the divine, the ultimate purpose of which we were created in the divine image with the godly abilities is that we should use them, develop them, for the world to benefit of civilization, but for what's the ultimate reason, not only benefit of civilization, so that civilization should be a more godly place and a dwelling place for God. So anything that is in this world, from the greatest scientific research to the smallest action that we do, the ultimate purpose of it is to make this world a dwelling place for God. As was given to us by the first commandment, multiply, be fruitful, and subdue the earth. So here we see, from a Jewish perspective, from a Torah perspective, the greatness of what makes us human, the uniqueness of what is human for us. So to understand the gift and the Jewish concept of mankind and how it actually changed the world, as we did in our previous two glasses, we're going to go rewind to what the world was like before it embraced this Jewish value. And before it realized the great importance of human life. And I don't think I'll, go out, I'll be going out on a limb if I say that everybody in this room probably agrees with me that human life is sacred and that all, more, all murder is inherently bad. Anybody disagree? 
Better get my bulletproof vest if I anybody there. Okay. Okay. This is something instinctive. The human being is obvious that any person will tell you it's automatic that murder is a bad thing and human life is sacred. But was it always this way? And as shocking as it may sound, the answer you will find that it wasn't always this way. Of course, every society understood the basic need to avoid murder because they wanted their population to continue and if everybody's just going to kill each other, there won't be a population. But in the utilitarian mode of things where they said we, by need, that's the only reason why they had people alive. They didn't value life. On the contrary, if somebody was weak or disabled, they had no problem killing them. If somebody had some type of not, if they didn't see a benefit that that person serves in society, they has no problem throwing them to the gutter and killing them. In the ancient world, the lack of human life was expressed in many shocking ways. One of them being infantide, which was the murder of infants. This was very common in the bastions of civilizations of Greece and, Greece and Rome. And I mentioned those two places because they were the officially the intelligentsia. They were the up-and-coming modern people of that era. And there were a number of reasons that led parents to commit what, was so, what we would call the unimaginable to us. A child who was perceived deformed, handicapped, was automatically killed. A child who they suspected was illegitimate was automatically killed. They even killed children. This is even greater. They're wealthy. Now, there were two reasons why mostly people, children were killed besides for, let's say, handicapped or whatever it was. Poor people killed children because they couldn't afford to have them. Rich people killed children because they didn't want, the children didn't want to split the inheritance with too many people. That's how greedy and how... How, how terrible it was. Well, it was all about a financial inconvenience for these children. Sometimes these children were killed directly, and more often they were just placed outside in the rubble and abandoned that they should die. And this was a practice that was well known as exposure. You can see this in text number five. Infant side of both legitimate and illegitimate children was a regular practice of antiquity. Children were thrown into rivers flung into dung heaps and cess trenches, potted to jars to starve to death, and exposed on, hill, on every hill and roadside. A prey for birds, food, and wild beasts to rent. To begin with, any child that was not perfect in shape or size, or cried too little or too much, who was otherwise described in the gene genealogical writings and how to recognize the newborn that is worth rearing, was generally killed. Beyond this, the firstborn was usually allowed to live, especially if it was a boy, girls, where girls were, of course, valued little in the instructions and the instructions of Hilarion, the wife of Alice, 1 BCE, are typical of the open way things were discussed. She said as follows, if as, as may well happen, you give birth to a child. If it is a boy, let live. If it is a girl, expose it. The killing of legitimate children, even by wealthy parents, was so common by Plobius, blamed it on the depopulation of Greece. In our own time, the whole Greece has been subject to a low birth rate and general decrease of the population owning in such cities that have become deserted and the land ceased to yield fruit, although there have neither been continuous nor was wars nor epidemics. As men have fallen in such states of parentishness, avarice and indolence, and that uh, 
that they did not wish to marry, or if they married to rear children born to them, or or at most, as a rule, but one of two of them. Until the 4th century, neither law nor public opinion found infanticide wrong with either Greece or Rome, the great philosophers agreed. Even the great philosophers, who Pibulus was a philosopher at the time, as well there was a Roman 12 tablets who recognized legislation, putting into law a certain type of modern constitution to stop infanticide. But in Rome, the father's right to kill, the, to kill children was enshrined in something which was called the 12 tablets, their constitution, that if a father wanted, they could kill their child at birth. Another law actually mandated that the father killed the child if the child was born with any type of deformity. It wasn't just the human society of Rome and Greece that practiced infanticide, but this was in general the pagan worldview. That for the very fact that their pagan gods didn't value life, because as we discussed last week, the pagan gods were all about clashing with each other and killing and were all just a matter of fate. So they didn't value life. So why indeed should anybody value life? The Romans and the Greeks' mythologies both describe their gods as engaging in genocide or in an infanticide. So why bother having children? Interesting thing is, you think it's only back 2,000 years ago. Unfortunately, the, pra- the practice of infanticide was not limited to Western civilization of Rome and Greece, but this was also an Eastern civilization, and even until today, in India and in China and in Japan, where infanticide is also widespread. The practice appears to seem almost uh, ubiquitous with ancient societies that they still do this today. In some places in China, I think in China there's a law, I think every family is only allowed to have two children, and after that they kill them. Because they're, they're in some places. And they kill female children. And, yeah, and females, so in, I think in some places female in China. The problem is today we don't even know half of the things that happen in China because of uh, it's a communism or whatever. But the, the bottom line is that it's the, these things unfortunately still exist to a certain extent. Even in Germany, Hitler was of the opinion that people who are children uh, that were born deformed or handicapped or disabled should be killed. It wasn't something that was only 2,000 years ago. Another thing was something called, it wasn't just the lives of children that they didn't value or had no value to them. The national Roman sport was called the gladiators. I'm sure you heard of it before. What were the gladiators was when men fought each other and they did not fight each other. They also fought wild beasts until they were killed. Text number six. The Lordis Serentis, which is the circus games. You'll find out, yeah. Consisted the spectacles, listen to it, of the very different types. The most usual were the Lordi Gladiatori. Gladiators, in which well-trained gladiators fought in various ways, each one trying to wound or kill the opponent. Gladiators were usually prisoners of war and were trained in barracks run on military lines. The public execution of criminals formed part of the Syrians, which is circus, where they were thrown at the bestidas, to the beasts, or put to death in some equally cruel way as the condemned man had to be tortured to death. There seemed to be no reason for cheating the public, who can never have enough bloodshed of such a spectacle. The Romans watched gladiator shows almost drunk with the sight of so much bloodshed that they would all scream, kill them, kill them, they shouted, beat them, burn them. Why does this meet the sword so timidly? Why didn't this one fight so bravely? Why did he do so, die so unwillingly? In the intervals, impatient voices could be heard. Now let's have some throats cut to keep the action going. You can see there was a total, terrible gory. The gladiators were comp- 
compelled to compete in the games, as we mentioned that you see over here, most of the gladiators were either prisoners or soldiers or people who didn't have, or very poor people that used to fight to be able to make some money if they survived. Or they were considered social outcasts, discharged soldiers. And the production of these gladiator circuses wasn't just one, two, or three. Just to give you a little bit of a, um, a little bit of what was going on, the bloodshed was, for the public was almost unsustainable. There was a, something called bread and circus during Roman times. That being that they wanted to keep the lower class happy, that they shouldn't complain, so they would give them bread and circus. Bread means that they gave them food to keep them quiet, and they gave them entertainment. What was the entertainment, the free entertainment that they had? Was the gladiators that they had them fighting with one another. To the extent under the emperor Trajan, who reigned between 98, year 98 and 117 CE, the spectacles reached in the thousands. There were 10,000 pair of gladiators squaring off over 123 days. Can you imagine how many people were being killed? That people were watching these events? Unbelievable. Such, they were, huh? They had no choice, many of them, because they were slaves or they were, or they were uh, poor soldiers. They were forced into doing it. The people that were watching were by choice. So such incredible displays of cruelty the people that were watching it were equally guilty because they were watching with, with such a delight. And nobody blinked an eye that maybe this is something wrong. And not only that, they pontificated about it. He should have killed him that way, he should have killed him that way. And let's make it more exciting, let's slash his throat. They celebrated, they glorified the killing. Another ancient practice was human sacrifice. Human sacrifices in which people sacrifice to their gods, either their children or them, other humans. And this went all the way from South America, all the way to Mesopotamia, the pagans of the African tribes. And I think even till today, there are some Zulus and some African tribes who are still doing human sacrifice, especially of children. And that was a fixture of the ancient world of human sacrifice. So what we see clearly over here, and what the point of this is, that we see that in the ancient world, now or even not in the so ancient world, and maybe even in some places, the human life, the dignity of human life, has been reduced. That it's non-existent. Now why did ancient acts act that way? If it's to us, to something that seems unfathomable. And that is because something very simple. Without the Torah... When somebody is looking at it from an ancient society, what is a human different than an animal? Just because you think? A dog eats, a man eats. Vegetation grows, more humans grow. If you all look at the divine image that exists with an individual, what makes the human being special? Because you speak? Big deal. Okay, so you're more a complex animal. Because you think? So what? What's the big deal? Not only that, their own gods killed each other, right? In their belief. So why can't they kill each other? Since when is the value of life anything? Humanity wasn't exceptional. There was no uniqueness in the human being. Number two, there was no inherent value of the human being. I'm here today, I'm gone tomorrow, so what? 
Every society had to refrain from murder to a certain degree to keep people alive, so there should be something to go on. But their society, their value of life was only based on a societal benefit. Okay, if you're smart and you invented something and you did something productive for society, you have a reason to be here. But or else, what's your value? The uh, little child, they saw no value in an adult who was educated, a philosopher, a doctor, somebody who contributed something to society. Okay, they saw something. So therefore, a result could have happened. Slaves, a discharged shoulder, a soldier, a poor person, somebody who had seemingly had no uniqueness of society, had no value, they had no problem killing them. Not only that, they gave them value. They made them entertainment. And therefore, they were able to tolerate such type of rampant murders in their civilization. Even more so. The moment you look at the concept, if I only look at something, what their benefit is for me, then I can murder anything. If there's no benefit, I use it. If I, throw, I throw it out. It's like a toilet paper. It's like the paper towels, whatever it is. I use it. Once I'm done with it, it's gone. It's a utilitarian way of looking at things. The only prohibition of murder is because there's a utility of that, individ- of that item. So in philosophical terms, the ancients, the value of life was basically based on a society. What they needed, how they valued it, what they looked at. And therefore the Greeks didn't consider infanticide cruel. They just saw it as logic necessary. This is a public policy for society. If we're going to have too many handicapped or disabled people, we don't have anybody to deal with them, so why bother? Let's kill them off now. If you're not being productive, kill the person. There was nothing godly or unique about this individual, and therefore, as a result, the person's life cannot be as a result. They just killed, easily. Because all people, there was no value to them. However, from a Jewish perspective, it's just the opposite. Every human being is inherently valuable. Every human being is created in the image of God. And because every human being is created in the image of God, is uniquely divine, human life is inherently valuable. And because human life is inherently valuable, there's an absolute prohibition of killing an individual. Because it doesn't make a difference what you did or what you didn't do. How rich or how poor. How great or how less great. The inherent value of the human being is the day he's born to the day he dies. Every human being carries the divine image of God. Every human being is special. It's qualitative. Regardless of its utility. A little child just being born is the greatest, is what makes this world godly. Has a purpose, is there, is part of the purpose of the world. To subdue it. The very fact that that child was born brings godliness into the world. Therefore, how can you murder somebody? This belief in the Torah of absolute prohibition of murder was not only given to the Jews. was already given to Noah. When Noah came out of the flood, out of the ark, and survived the flood, there were seven Noahide laws that Noah made. And that was told to, by, to Noah by God. 
And one of them was do not murder. Text number seven. Page 82. For your lifeblood I will demand an accounting. From the hand of each human being, from the hand of each man of that of a brother, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood shall have his blood shed by man, for God made the human in his image. God tells, it sounds repetitive, but we're going to get to later on, we'll see how each one of these verses are telling us another law. But what over here God is telling us very clearly, that the human being has a created in God's image, and therefore we cannot shed the other person's blood. You don't have the right to kill another person. To take this a step further, this is to the Noahites, this is to all of humankind. But in the Ten Commandments that we're actually reading this week in the Torah reading, there are Ten Commandments, and you know the Ten Commandments were put on two tablets, five on each. The first five are between man and God. The second five are between man and his fellow. But if you look at commandment number one, what's commandment number one? I am God who took you out of Egypt. What is commandment number six? Do not, matter, do not murder. If you read it across, not down and up, what is the one that's going to be next to I am your God? Is do not murder. Why does the Torah juxtapose the two together of do not murder and I am your God? Because God is telling us the value of each human life. God is telling us, the Medrash explains to us and it says, I am your God is because I am your God, therefore you're not allowed to murder. Look in text number 8, the Medrash tells us on page 83, I am your God is written on one tablet and the corresponding line on the second tablet is, do not murder. The Torah thereby teaches us that one who spills human blood is considered to have reduced the divine king's image. This is analogous to a human, being, a human king who gained rule over a country. Statues of his image were erected, were erected and coins were minted in his image. Sometime later the people toppled the statues of the king and abolished his currency. By doing so they reduced the image of the king. Similarly, any person who spills human blood is considered by the Torah to have reduced the divine image of king. As the verse states, whoever sheds human blood shall have his blood shed by man. For God made the human in his image. The statement about God's existence juxtapose the prohibition of do not murder is because God is saying, you kill a human being, I'm invested in that human being. You're killing God. And it's for this reason that murder is forbidden, absolutely forbidden, categorically forbidden, no exceptions. There's no thing that one life is considered less valuable than another, regardless of the person's disability, deformity. It doesn't make a difference to a person's poverty or wealth. The human being is a human being. Every single person in this world has and is created with a divine image and every single person's existence in this world is part of the purpose of subduing and sanctifying the world. Our very presence in this world makes this world a holy place because we are all a reflection of God. And it is for that reason that the Mishnah says, one who destroys one life it is as if they destroy the entire universe. And by contrast, one who saves one life is as if they even save the entire universe. Because every single human being is valuable to being existent in this world. This is why Judaism is so radically different from any of the surrounding societies on this issue. 
to the extent that the practices of infanticide, gladiate, even back then, and human sacrifice were abhorrent by Jews. Jews is an interesting thing that the Jews did not even go to those stadiums. We're soon going to mention about the stadiums that where they had them in the time of the, that they're going to be transformed, whatever it may be. But Jews never went to the stadiums. The only time the Jews even went near those stadiums was when they had to vote for the next ruling power that it should be somebody that they had to vote for. It should be in favor below the Jews. In fact, not vote, they had to go, and that's where all the slaves were, because they would put the slaves that they should be the gladiators, and if there was a Jewish slave, they would have to go and redeem them and, and buy him out, that he shouldn't have to be part of the gladiators. So that's when the only time the Jewish people went even near those stadiums. For Jews, this was something, un, un, even to the most secular Jew, it was something which was abhorred, it was something not even understood. That's why it's not coincidental that the first philosopher in the Greek tradition to speak out against this practice was a fellow by the name of Philo. Who was Philo? He was a Hellenist Jew. And this Hellenist Jew, that regardless of how far he was from Judaism to the extent that he withdrew himself from Judaism, he still condemns infanticide strongly and explains that Jewish law forbids it completely. The Roman historian Tactus who despised the Jews as the most, he called them the most degraded of all the races and considered their customs, so to speak, perverse and disgusting, described that one of the peculiarities about the Jews was, one of the peculiar things about them, was that they considered killing their children as a crime. That's what he said. Wow, that's so weird. That's what he looked at Jews as like strange creatures because they look at killing their children as a crime. You can see it in text number 9, page 84. They provide for the increase of their numbers. It is a crime among them to kill the newborn infant. Hence a passion for propagating their race and a contempt for death. That was their way how they used to say... Oops, went backwards. That was their way of saying that the Jewish people were different. Because the human beings looked at, do not murder, I am your God, all as one. A human being is created in the divine image and therefore murder is not just killing a person but is an offense to the divine image, destroying the purpose of what the world was created for. What we see over here is the gift, the divine image, the value of human life that Jewish people had that while the world was absent of. So what happened? What changed? But before we go to what changed... I'm sure this is all a question that's bothering you. Is there ever a time that human life, killing, can ever be justified? Is there ever such a case that killing can be justified? Because any person who has any knowledge of the Torah... I think it was an earlier class that if someone was trying to kill you, attack you, you have not just a right to defend yourself, Okay, look at that. Great, we have scholars and people that came to another class. So we're going to learn about self-defense, but is there a question that we have? Is there a right? Can killing ever be justified? And if yes, when? Now, there are religions and religious groups, let's just put it out there, or we call them pacifists. And pacifists are against any killing of whatsoever. Regardless, they say it's never justified to kill, even in self-defense, even in national defense. As you well heard, the Torah does not agree with such a stance. And why is that? And over here you can see that what does the Torah say in the Ten Commandments? 
Lo tirzach, do not murder. Unfortunately, many people mistranslate it as do not kill. There's a big difference between killing and murder. Killing and murder. Murder comes from the word rotzeach, while harog means the word kill. What's the difference between the two? When I murder... So let's look at the difference. To murder is always prohibited. You can also kill plant. We'll get to in a moment why. To murder is always prohibited. To kill is sometimes justified. What does it mean? What kind of cases? And we'll see the two differences. When can killing be justified? Number one, judicial execution. When it comes, the Torah allows us to kill. When it comes to, for example, capital punishment, the crime of murder. Though I note that even though the Torah does say and talk about capital punishment, it was rarely done. When I say rarely, the Torah, I think we learned about it in the previous uh, course, that if a Bezdin, if a rabbinical tribunal killed a person once in 70 years, they were called murderers. So it was rarely done. The only time that it was more rampant that the Bezdin actually killed people was in the end of the era of the Second Temple. Other than that, we didn't find many times that they should kill. They needed to have, I'll give you just a little a, a case that which is so different than American law today. If there was a unanimous court to kill the person, that means it had to be only in a Bezdin of at least 23 judges or 71. And if it was unanimous to kill him, then the guy was set free. Anybody can tell me why? If there's a unanimous consensus that the person's deserving of capital punishment, he was innocent. It has to be across the board. Huh? It has to be everybody if, if, if it was unanimous, if all 71 rabbis say, unanimous, everybody agrees that he has to be killed, the person was innocent. Hmm. Why? You have to have a Gemara cup to be able to come with such an answer. So you have to what? Have a Gemara cup. You have to think in the way of Talmudic terms. It's because if, if all 70, if 70 Jews agree on something, that means they weren't all thinking on their own. <laughs> that means they were just following the lead. And that means if one Jew couldn't come up with an excuse to save this guy, that means you guys weren't doing it properly. You were just following the lead. An interesting thing the Talmud says. So when we talk about capital punishment, capital punishment does exist in Jewish law. The Torah talks about it. Moses did capital punishment to two people we find in the book of Numbers, to the person who was blasphemous and the person who desecrated the Shabbos in public. Right? Those two people. Moses did capital punishment to them. So we find capital punishment. That's one case where killing can be justified. A second case... Sorry? A Jew in Mitzrayim, right? No, no, no. I'm talking about in the desert. The one that he killed in Egypt was a Jew in Egypt. Was not a Jew. Was an Egyptian. That was also... And that's the next case why he killed that Egyptian. But I'm talking about Moses in the desert. The Jew that was blasphemous. In fact being that you mentioned that story, the Jew that was blasphemous in the desert that was killed was born from the relationship of the Egyptian that raped the woman in Egypt. Just to give you a little bit of example. So you talk about everything's connected. Rabbi, what about the other murder with 
I'm talking, yep, there were capital punishment. Okay, second case. A second case where capital punishment is allowed is in self-defense. Self-defense not only for yourself, but self-defense for another person. If you see another person being about to be killed, you have to step inside, if you're able to, of course, and you can kill that person before he kills somebody else. Another case of self-defense would be national self-defense. Where a nation has to stand up and protect itself from its enemy, they can go to war to, uh, they can go to war even if it means that they will have to kill somebody. Killing is an inescapable part of war, and in the context of war, is not forbidden. Then why do the rabbis in Israel tell the yeshiva boys not to go to the army? Okay, that's a separate discussion. That's a separate discussion because the word you said, yeshiva boys. If they're not yeshiva boys, then they should be going to the army. Because in Israel, there are two types of defenses. There's a defense of learning Torah and the defense of going to the army. And there are those that are defending the land of Israel by studying Torah, and there are those that are defending the land of Israel by going to the army. If a boy is not studying Torah, then yes, he should go to the army. But that's a separate discussion on its own. Well, okay. Well, there you have one thing. Add it to the list. <laughs> that's a whole different thing. As I said, a separate discussion. Okay. One commentary sees this allowance, and where does it get it from? Text number seven, if in text number seven we say, when the Torah tells us about murder, the Torah also, we're going to go to text number 10, and the Torah says as follows, this commentary is from Rabbi Naftali Berlin, who says, why does the Torah repeat itself? From your brother you will not shed blood, but from another brother you can shall blo- shed blood. And he says as follows, the verse states, text number 10, page 86, from the hand of each man of that of his brother with this God qualified the man is punished for murder in times of camaraderie and peace. However, at times of war and conflict, killing is allowed and does not incur punishment. Rabbi Berlin interprets the verse by saying that in times of peace, when people conduct themselves normally in normative times with one another as brothers, then it's absolutely forbidden to kill another person. But when you're not like brothers, meaning that it's in time of conflict, then one must even fight when it comes to saving lives, even if it means to taking lives. While one is allowed to, and here's an interesting caveat in all this, while taking lives may be justified, can be justified, and not only justified, but in many times in certain wars, required in specific circumstances, the Torah still, as we know, is a way of peace. And the Torah shuns and looks down at bloodshed as something, as a stain. And who do we see this most powerful by? None other than King David. King David is probably considered the greatest Jewish monarch and a greatest warrior. Fought many wars to be able to get Israel to where it was was able to annex great land for Israel. And King David himself prepared the footing for the building of the Holy Temple. He made the foundation. However, when it came to the actual construction of the Holy Temple, God told him, sorry David, you cannot do it. Why? Because his hands had too much bloodshed. King David couldn't build a temple, but only Solomon, his son, was the one to eventually build a temple. Text number 11 in the book of Chronicles, page 87. 
David said to Solomon, My son, my intention was to build a house for God. But the word of God came to me saying, You have shed too much blood. <clears throat> and therefore you shall, build, you shall not build a house for me because you have shed too much blood on the earth before me. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and I will give him his respite from the enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon and I will grant peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for me. What we see over here is something unbelievable. Why couldn't David build a temple? Yes, something? Oh, I was saying. Why couldn't David build a temple? Because what does God say? Because he had blood on his hands. But the blood was required. He had to kill the enemies that were there attacking the Jewish people. Okay. First of all, if you recall, two years ago we had a class on that, where that fellow Uriah Chiti, Bathsheba's husband, was liable at a death penalty for rebelling against the king. That's number one. Number two, but that's not the blood that God's telling him. The blood that he had on his hand was because he waged wars, starting from Goliath all the way through. Many different wars he waged. But God tells him, listen here, King David, as great as you are, you're not going to be able to do it because you have bloodshed on your hands. This teaches us a very important lesson. Though that war at times is necessary, and not only is it necessary, the wars that King David did, many of them were Melchemist mitzvah, they were a war of a mitzvah, still and all, it's despised and considered disgusting. Tell you even more so. Even when the Jewish people came into the land of Israel, the land of Yeshua, and they had to get rid of the seven nations that were there, the first thing they had to say, they had to extend their hand to peace. If they were the only way they had a right to go out and kill them outright was if they, if they were ready to attack them, or if they were not interested in peace. Not only that, as the Talmud uses the terminology, if you know somebody wants to kill you, you don't have to wait for them to attack and then to kill you. Hashkem Loharga, you can go up and preemptively attack him if you know he wants to kill. You can take the offense. To the extent that we know that killing, though may be required at times, and though may be allowed at times, still and all, not only is killing itself despised, but even the weapons, the instruments of killing. And this is actually an applicable law today. Because especially, as you mentioned, many Israeli soldiers, if you walk in Israel, everybody's holding a weapon. And the law becomes, if they allowed to walk, are they allowed to carry it on Shabbos? Number one. Number two, are they allowed to bring it into shul? Are they allowed to carry it on Shabbos today? They're allowed to because since they have to. But what about a person that doesn't want to wear a rifle for an ornament? And the Mishnah says, text number 12, a man cannot go out on Shabbos with a sword, a bow, shield, club, or spear. These weapons are a disgrace for the person, as the verse states, as they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will take, not take up a sword against a nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Weapons are not considered accessories. For example, what makes a jewelry for something? If a woman's going to walk out with a beautiful necklace, but nobody else finds that necklace beautiful. But if she finds it as an ornament, it's considered an ornament. She's allowed to wear it on Shabbos. It's not considered carrying. However, a weapon is not considered an ornament. As many ways that you're going to put those spears and knocking them together and put them in some beautiful charm, the Torah tells us no, because weapons are something which is despised, because we know when Mashiach comes, all weapons will become, will turn the weapons into plowshares. That's the big statement that is on the United Nations from Isaiah, that it will beat their swords into plowshares. What if 
Oh, if you need it because of self-defense, then it's no longer an ornament, it becomes a necessity. What I mentioned before as well, there's even an opinion that says, even when you need it for self-defense, and this law well applies today in Israel, the soldiers, when they come into shul, they will put a cover on the top of their barrel, and that's not only for safety reasons, it's because they come into a shul, the shul is there to extend the life of people, and therefore a weapon should not be exposed in a shul, because that shortens the life of people. And the same idea you will find that many people will avoid using metal, for example, for a mezuzah, because a mezuzah extends the life of people, while metal, which is made into weapons, can shorten the life of people. Or other some type of things that people, another custom, just I don't want to go on a tangent too much, people will not give a knife as a gift. Huh? It's a bad omen, but not only it's a bad omen, but because a knife is something which shortens the life of a person and a gift you're giving because you're happy about the person, so they wouldn't give a knife as a gift to a person. So these are just things that you see clearly in Jewish law that weapons are something which are not held in high regard. Sorry? I said it's a custom. And not only that, metal, there's different types of metal. If it's silver and brass, that means it's made into a nice item, so then it takes away the metal component of shortening a life. Because it's some, nobody is using a silver sword as uh, killing it. Those are ornament, ornament pieces. Another thing we also find, the sages describe even what does it mean, the messianic vision, and highlights these places of you look, and if we mentioned before about these stadiums where they would celebrate the gladiators and all things, and that the, the Talmud and the, the Pasuk, the verse, the Talmud of Megillah says, text number 13, the cities of Edom shall be like a chief in Judah and Ekron, and they shall be like Jebusi, Jerusalem. This refers to the amphitheaters, the circuses of Rome, where the princes of Judah are destined to teach Torah publicly. Now what does it mean while the Roman streets at that time were places of idolatry, places of um, paganism, places where they celebrated death, what is going to be in the time of the coming of Mashiach, that these places will be turned into bastions of teachings of Torah, that there will be stadiums where the Torah will be taught to from, and that is what the Messianic era refers to, a time and a place of where there will be the ultimate peace, and these murders that Rome, and places and venues that Rome and Greece have used for murder, will then turn into places of life and peace and teachings of Torah. Unfortunately, Mashiach is not here yet. And the amphitheaters of Rome have yet to become great yeshivas and bastions of Torah. And, but the circuses of death have been relegated to tourist attractions, even though they're still there, the Leaning Towers and all those different places. The brutal culture that it represents is no longer there and is now all in the history books. How did it all disappear? How did it all get away? What happened that the world no longer indulges in murder and killing and infanticide and all those things? How did the Jewish gift of the value of human life eventually changed the world to the point that we are now today, that today you ask an average person, they don't have to be religious, they don't have to be observant, even an atheist will tell you, you don't kill people. Murder is something terrible. What is it? So first of all, we know 
that all the monotheistic religions originally come from the Torah. So when the Christian Bible adapted from our Torah, the laws do not kill and do not murder, eventually, as we know, how did Christianity become so popular was because the Romans adapted Christianity. The Roman Emperor Constantine, he was the first one to convert to Christianity in the earlier 4th century. And when he decided to convert to Christianity, he then put a stop to the gladiators. And he considered the gladiators at the time as a crime. So he abolished the gladiator games in the year about 325 CE, while the form of entertainment was difficult to uproot, but within a century, these gruesome spectacles already ceased to exist and almost completely disappeared. Unfortunately, though these uh, forms of spectacles and amphitheaters may have disappeared, Christianity, for one, does not have the most peaceful record. Historically, Christians have probably killed more people than any other nation, any other religion, in the name of religion. Starting with the Crusaders, to the Spanish Inquisition, and even to the Germans. They were Catholics. Roman Catholics, I think. So, huh? I thought the Germans were basically Protestants. Protestants? Oh, well, it all comes all from Christianity, right? So, so the, the Christians killed more people than Islam? And the next one, second, <laughs> is Muslims, that they also killed in historically, actually killing Jews was more Christians than Muslims. Killing amongst themselves, I think more Muslims, uh, more Muslim. But the bottom line is nevertheless, though they technically accepted upon themselves, Islam and Christianity did accept upon themselves the concepts and the ideas of, uh, of not to kill and not to murder and the sanctity of life, they unfortunately in the name of religion, they have killed many people. But nevertheless, it's become accepted that people just couldn't kill because I don't like you, because, because I had a convenience. That definitely. They did make, quote-unquote, legitimate reasons to be able to kill people, but life became, to a certain extent, sacred. It wasn't just, I don't like the way you look, so therefore we're going to kill you. Which did happen in ancient times, in Roman, in Greece, in Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar one day decided, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylonia, the first king, and one day killed 40,000 people because he woke up on the left side. Literally. And that's what happened in ancient times. So what we have over here is we know how the other religions took it upon themselves. We know the unique gift that God gave us. But the creation of humanity in the divine image wasn't only to teach us the prohibition of causing death. One of the things about Judaism is that it teaches us how to live. How to live our lives. And how to negotiate its challenges. And therefore we need to go back to what the second part of the unique gift that God gave us, which is to subduing the land, the world, and, and, and the implication of making God's mission in this world, of making this world a dwelling place for God. We learned before that God gave us all a unique mission, which is to subdue the world and to make it a godly place. By that, how did God do that? By giving every single one of us a divine image. What is this divine image? Though? This divine image helps us 
advance civilization and make this world a more godly place. But what happens when life throws us a curveball? What happens when life puts us in inevitable situations? Well, and over here we see again the contrast between the Torah view, the godly view, the Jewish view, versus the pagan view. If I look at for paganism, fate is binding. You're thrown into a curveball? Tough luck! Eat it up! That's who you are. There's no getting around it. That's what it is. Even the gods were identified by their miserable times and they succumbed to it and that's it. Time over. They had no way of changing the course of, so to speak, their worldview. But what did the Torah do? The Torah broke this mold. And the Torah tells us, no, fate does not determine who we are. The Torah tells us that every single human being was created in the divine image. Every single person has a divine image and is given the task to subdue the world, not the world to subdue it. We are in control. So if life throws you a curveball, it means that you have the ability to change the circumstances. The circumstances don't change you. You have the ability to stand up against the challenges and the obstacles. Fate does not determine who you are. You determine your fate. What's step number one in determining your fate? What did God give us? What was the unique quality that we started off the today's class saying? The unique quality that was given to the human being? What is the divine image? Intelligence. God gives us the intelligence to understand and to circumvent the fate that seemingly has been handed us. We have our intellect that God has gifted us with. Our intelligence to work around it. To manipulate. To change our environment. There's a sickness. We don't sit down and say, Oy vey. We stand up and look for a cure for it. We're being attacked. We stand up and fight it. Where we look at how to manipulate the situation. We don't become circumstances of our situation. We use our intelligence to stand up and change the situation. How do we change the situation? What was the next thing that God gave us? Uniquely us as Jewish people, uniquely us as people versus angels. We are not robotic. We are not programmed. We have free choice. Now free choice is very strong. Because free choice can make you decide to lay in the mud and give up and throw your hands up and say, that's it, this is who I am, that's what's going to be. Or free choice says, no, I'm going to change the perspective. I'm going to change the way it is. I'm going to change the outlook. If we're to honest, we'll say, well, is this always possible? We were created in the image of God, in His likeness. We don't have unlimited powers, we're only like God. But here too, our divine image tells us. You may think, oi, listen, I used my intelligence, I used my free choice, but I'm stuck. Over here also, God tells us, it's all perspective. It's all the way you look at it. The free choice is not only in what you're going to do, but even more so of how you look at it. Do you look at this as a stumbling block? 
or do you look at this as a stepping stone? Do you look at this as a step back or do you look at this as a propelling to be able to get you even further? The challenges are not necessarily the way we react to them, but is our perspective of the challenges that would ultimately change us who we are and what we do. In a letter to a person that wrote to the Rebbe that he's in great despair, the Rebbe offers him sensitive and profound guidance in text number 14. Listen clearly to this letter. Unbelievable. Page 90. It is clearly apparent that affecting the life's events have, us, have on us depend, to a large degree, on our perspective towards them and our reaction to them. There is no better example for this than Maimonides. Maimonides' life circumstances were filled with extraordinary distressing events, troubles and tumults, suffering and tragedies. May God protect us. Yet, nevertheless, Maimonides' outlook on life as expressed in his book of the Guide of Perplex was extremely positive and optimistic. On the other hand, we see many people whose life circumstances seem successful. Yet, only very rarely do they show any measure of satisfaction. You can have a person that has everything, but is as grumpy as you get. When circumstances are beyond our control, it becomes especially vital to tap into Hasidic teaching, which enables the human mind to find some measure of positivity in an undesired circumstance. My intention with the above is not to reproach you. God forbid. In fact, it is difficult to write such things to you, knowing that what you have endured. I am only trying to guide you some Torah concepts, that can lessen your burden and assert your spirit, at least in some measure. This is until the fulfillment of the promise that the good of God will give you, will show you His favor in all that you need. When we say the divine image, when we talk about the divine image, is that we exercise choices. This includes, and most importantly, a perspective. In every situation we find ourselves, we have the ability, as the Rebbe puts it, to look like Maimonides, to look positive regardless. Or we can have whatever we want and still fetch and complain and always be upset. It's a matter of our perspective. Let's take, for example, one person. Joseph. Biblical narrative of Joseph. I'm not going to read all the texts inside because we all know the story of Joseph. What happened to Joseph? Let's go quickly what happened to Joseph. Joseph was despised amongst his brothers. His brothers, I'm going to go through text 15a, b, and c outside. I'm sorry, a and b. Which is, Joseph was despised by his brothers, thrown into a pit. Eventually, he sold into slavery. Even while he sold into slavery, into a place where he doesn't know the language, he doesn't know the people, he's 17 years old, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. What happens while he's there? He becomes an administrator of a household, he becomes all successful, he becomes the guy in charge of where he is in the slave. He becomes so successful that people become jealous of him, and because of that they frame him, and he's then thrown into prison, he's thrown into jail. But even while he's thrown into jail, he becomes in charge of the jail. He becomes the prison administrator, and thereby becomes to interpret the dreams, interpret the butler and the baker's dreams, eventually comes to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and where does he end up? Being the viceroy of Egypt, bringing his family back down to Egypt and supplying them with every need. Joseph could have easily, the moment he was sold as a slave by his brothers, given up hope and say, that's it, I'm lost. I don't have family, I don't speak the language. But he never lost, he had a free choice, he had a perspective. He said that God is with me whatever I do. 
And if God is with me, whatever I do, I will be successful in what I do because God is with me. This was his positive resolution, his free choice that he made, which gave him the ability to shape his fate. Another gift that God has given us as, the, as people, as humankind, or another gift that Judaism gives the world, is the very fact that we were created with the divine image, gives us the ability to choose our fate. So, in practices like infanticide, gladiator combat, by now are ancient history. Right? So you may ask, what kind of gift does Torah give now to the world? Nobody's doing gladiators. The Torah is contemporary. The Torah is constant. The Torah is there always at all time. Over here, what kind of gift is the Torah giving to the world and the value of human life if seemingly by now everybody already accepts it? And the answer to the question is that unfortunately, there is still to give, not only because unnecessary wars and murder is still common, not only because of that, but unfortunately today, the value of life itself is slipping. What do I mean? For many years, life was considered inherently valuable and sacred. In the Western world, there was no questions. The belief was grounded in biblical texts that we studied before, that the human being is created in the divine image and therefore is ultimately sacred, no questions asked. But unfortunately, there's been a shift recently, especially in the medical ethics world. And in the medical ethics world, there's something seen, considered, where human life is not necessarily inherently valuable. What do I mean? There becomes a question between rights and value. Anybody, unfortunately, that had to deal with a situation where somebody was terminally ill and they wanted that the patient should have, there's something called a medical ethics called, the basic human right that they should decide should they end their life or not, which will you call physician-assisted suicide, PAS or euthanasia, whatever it may be. And what's the reason? is because today medical ethics wants to choose personal autonomy, those are the two key words, over sanctity of life. And unfortunately, with the shift of viewing the personal human right, euthanasia, personal assisted suicide has become not only predominantly more common, but it also became legal in many Western countries, including eight of the U.S. states and the District of Columbia. And the qualification for somebody to have a physician-assisted suicide varies differences between states. But the typical scenario is that you can have a person who is suffering from a terminally ill, terminally illness, receiving prescriptions for a lethal dose of drugs. That means in many states a person may be eligible for physician-assisted suicide while the person is a functioning, normal human being. How about they have a terminally illness and suffering pain? The Torah forbids euthanasia of any kind. The same way the Torah forbids of ending life before the time that God calls upon it. And the reason is, what's the difference? Modern view looks at life as a right. I have the right to decide if I should live or not. Even though seemingly which doesn't make sense, is that while suicide is illegal, 
physician-assisted suicide is allowed. If life is a right, then why should you be able to not do suicide, right? Legalization, and because of that, they legalize physician-assisted suicide. The Torah views life as sacred, as an expression of God. And if the life is an expression of God, then it doesn't make a difference how old or how young or how ill a person may be, their life is sacred. And for that reason, physician-assisted suicide is forbidden according to Jewish law. I'm just going to take you, let me just finish this point and then we'll take the questions because I know you have a lot of questions on this. Hold on. One commentator takes this from the word that we learned previously in the words that God told Noah when he came out of the ark and he says as follows, text number 16. There are two forms of murder. One is murder intended for the detriment of the victim. Listen to these words closely. An act of revenge in order to take the victim's money or like. A second form of murder is for the benefit of the other, when someone is overwhelmed with great pain and prefers death to life. The Torah addresses both of these. Regarding murder for the detriment of the victim, the verse says, from the hand of each human being. The second form of murder, which is committed with the consent of the suffering individual, and for his or her benefit may even be done by virtuous friend, who may believe that it is for in fact a mitzvah, the verse, therefore, says, from the hand of each man, from that of his brother. Yes? I noticed that you said uh, normal function in human. So does that imply uh, you know, you're separating? Between... No, I'm giving an example. I'm taking an extreme case where you can have a normal functioning human being, but because he has a terminal illness, they are allowed to give him, a, if, uh, I'm, how much more so? Any other person, they shouldn't be allowed. And what I'm saying is that you can have a case of a regular human, per, a regular person who goes about his way, but because he has a terminally, terminally ill, uh, as he's terminally ill or has a terminal illness, they can then give him a drug which is lethal to kill him. Right. Yes. And you're implying that if the guy is. Uh, I'm not implying anything. I'm sorry if I came you across are implying, that. Because you, you, you got to watch your words. Then. You okay. I said I'm sorry if I'm implying differently. Right. That's what I mean by normal. That yeah. That's a very, it's an interesting case. King Saul had a similar situation. If you recall, that he asked, the, his, he was hit by an arrow and he asked his, um, his assistant to put the spear in him and kill him earlier. And over there we find that he did it. The only reason why he was allowed to do it there was because once he was killed, then nobody else would be killed. And therefore, by killing himself, he was then saving the other people. It is an interesting halachic debate once a person already has that. But speaking of, technically speaking, on a raw value, without going into all the details and the commentators about it, you would probably not be allowed to uh, quicken his death. I can say quickly is there's morphine given to relieve pain, and that's the intention? Morphine, you can give to relieve pain. Morphine's not killing the person. The person on the dime, really, would relieve his pain. That would be the yeah, that's only giving to relieve his pain. Morphine is not killing the guy. He's saying, can I kill the person if I don't have morphine? You said you don't have. If I don't have the morphine, I can't kill the person. Right. 
you don't have the morphine and therefore you see he's in pain and therefore you want to kill him according to Allah you're not allowed to do it yes so according to Allah if somebody is brain dead can you what are you allowed to do that goes into a whole new question of medical ethics of two different schools of thought within Jewish law so we'll leave it for yeah Okay, so that's a very good question about hospice in general. And this is a, a, as I I said, this is not a medical ethics class. We're talking about the concept that we see the value of life. For that reason, um, the way we view hospice is different than the way the medical world views hospice. Meaning, just to give you one example, Jewish law will not allow to take somebody off a feeding tube. They will maybe not give the person the feeding tube to begin with, but we cannot take off the feeding tube. That means we cannot do anything that will hasten his death because we believe that life is sacred. So in hospice, they do remove feeding tubes. Does that mean not pulling the plug? Does that mean not pulling the plug included as well? That means, or DNR, DNI. That means if once a person is intubated, once a person's intubated, we will not take out the intubation. But we don't have to necessarily intubate to begin with. Mm. You understand the difference? Oh, I know. That means we have to do... So what I'm saying is from a Jewish law perspective, the difference. The difference is that we have to do every life-saving measure we can. But if the life-saving measure might cause the person prolonged pain afterwards, then not necessarily are we required to do it. But let's go back to where we are because this, whole medical, this brings us into a whole new area of medical ethics. My point of this was that the principle of the divine image gives us guidance about how we have to deal in tragic situations. And when we look at the situation, let's take for example today in medical ethics. If you have a patient that's 95 years old and needs to have a transplant, or needs to have uh, bypass, or whatever it may be, and the person's healthy enough to do it, they are not necessarily first on the list, or they will push it off and say the person's not, he lived a good life, let them just go, whatever, anything else. Jewish life says no. Jewish law says if there's a person who's 119 years old, and 364 days, and fell under, and a ton of bricks fell on them, you're allowed to desecrate the Shabbos. To remove those bricks because that person is life is sacred. That means as long as that person is alive, even if they're alive by machines, their life is sacred, their life is holy, and therefore we are not allowed to we are not allowed to go by fate. We have to go by what is is considered a sacred life. And this is where our choice <clears throat> when we talk about autonomy of choice, where while physician-assisted suicide is all about autonomy, making choice, yes, we can make choices. And that's one of the unique things of the divine image. You might say, well, we should make the choice. But the Torah teaches us that choice is even greater when it has a godly quality. And this choice is an expression of the divine image. When we make a choice which is within the line of the sanctity of the person, not a choice which is destructive of, this, of the sanctity of the individual, and even a person in a terrible condition has an awesome, godly power that has the ability to rise above it. And sometimes people ask me, what a kind of, the person's lying like a vegetable, what are they doing? Where is their sanctity? 
How do you know how many lives this person may have touched while he's lying there? Who knows? Where do you, you're not God. You don't know the sacredness, the sanctity of what's going on and the powers that it demands. And sometimes it takes a superhuman power to see the, so to speak, the light within all the dark. And for this reason, I want to show you a video and introduce you to somebody that I met. Actually, I knew him growing up. We grew up together. We went to the same yeshiva. He's only three years older than me. And he was two classes above me. He was, he's a fellow shliach. He's a, he was a shliach of the Rebbe in California. And I'm sure, watching this video, he's a source. I just met him two years ago again. I went to see him. And watching this video, he was a source of inspiration for me. And I'm sure he'll be a source of inspiration for you as well. Just one second. I'm just going to, just give me one second. I'm going to play it off a different device. We did have medical ethics course in the past, and eventually we'll have another one, I guess. We actually discussed this concept. Just give me one second. Give me one second. Here we go. No, they went up there? Okay, that's one. See it up there? Is the realization that God is real. 
that he has a plan for the world, and I am part of it. Everyone is a part of it, and everyone's part is important. So if he put me in this position, he must want something of me that I can only do in this position. When you see it this way, instead of feeling down when you are in a challenging situation, you are filled with a sense of purpose. It is now over five years since Hashem gifted me with ALS. While life is full of difficulties, pain, and suffering, there is so much to be grateful for. While I understand the hardships, I choose to focus on the positive parts of my life, and that keeps me going. There is my wife, my children, family, friends, and you. Even within the suffering and difficulties, I can still contribute and help others. Through my blog, I have the opportunity to learn and teach Torah. I forged new friendships with the teens and yeshiva boys that visit. Being crushed has brought stronger connections, new abilities, higher purpose and deeper meaning. I've been blessed with a voice that can't sing, with a body that doesn't work, so I dance to a new rhythm. I'm Yitzi Hurwitz, and I know that I matter. Thank God most of us don't have these challenges. But we all have our own struggles in life. And we can draw inspiration from what Yosef, biblically, or our modern-day Rabbi Horowitz has to deal with in his family. And to live with the divine image means that we never resign ourselves to our fate. On the contrary, we look to change it. And even when the most negative of circumstances come and change us, try to change us, Physically, we just change our perspective and we search for meaning and purpose within them. Therefore, when we look to move further to see what we can do, we have to remember that God gave us a divine image, gave us a job that we have to do. And we have to do that job and share with the world at large. And then we know that when we do our job in making this world a place for God, then we will change all of society ourselves included, in the most very important way. Next week, we will continue that if we truly believe that we are made in God's image, that every person is equal in the importance of God's eyes, how then did this principle that all men are created equal become a universal message? Any questions? Go back to the PowerPoint.